I think the Justice Department needs to re-examine that opinion that you cannot indict a sitting president. Yes. Me too. Me too. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's one reason. I got the feeling that something ain't right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the From Pacifica with you. Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California, and KFOI in Round Mountain on KKRN and in Eureka on KGOE. In Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Groves, KKSO. In Eugene on KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. Grand Rapids, Michigan's WPRR. In New Orleans on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, and in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950, KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day for your convenience on the Internet. On the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, Detour Talk, and Deprogrammed Radio. Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. We've got uh, we've got a bit of resolution today of a sort uh, in several stories that we've been covering in detail here over the past several weeks in Wisconsin, Michigan, and if I can get to it, even in Maine, following the November 6th midterm elections. Also, uh, sort of the opposite, I guess, of resolution, an expansion of the ongoing North Carolina GOP U.S. House absentee ballot election fraud scandal, uh, which has so far uh, prevented the certification of a Republican elected, apparently through GOP fraud for the U.S. House of Representatives. It has prevented him from being certified in the state's 9th Congressional District. And now new details suggest that that scandal may be spreading to other U.S. House districts in North Carolina. All of that is ahead today. But first, as we noted on our previous broadcast, the president of the United States went on to Fox News on Thursday and declared that his former personal lawyer and fixer, Michael Cohen, teamed up with the U.S. Attorney's Office from Trump's Department of Justice in the Southern District of New York in order to forward a plot meant only to embarrass him. 
Michael Cohn swore under perjury that the several felony crimes he was pleading guilty to were true and he will face prison time for them. The U.S. Attorney's Office in Manhattan also charged that those crimes did in fact happen and shortly after Cohn's sentencing to three years in jail and about $2 million in fines, prosecutors also unsealed a non-prosecution agreement with America American Media Inc., or AMI, the publishers of the National Enquirer, in which AMI, also under penalty of perjury, said that the charges regarding a violation of campaign finance law directed by Donald Trump were also true. They all have sworn with evidence to back them up, including audio tape in at least one case and financial records in both, that Donald Trump quoted, uh, uh, quote, directed the criminal conspiracy to pay hush money to two separate women just before the 2016 election in order to keep them quiet about the sexual affairs he'd had with them because Trump wanted to keep them from talking so that it wouldn't affect his chances of winning the presidency in that year's election. But on Fox News, Trump alleged the uh, campaign finance charges related to the hush money payouts, which he no longer appears to deny, that those charges were, quote, put on to Cohen's charges in order to, quote, embarrass me. So what happened is either Cohen or the prosecutors, in order to embarrass me, said, listen, I'm making this deal for reduced time and everything else. Do me a favor. Put these two charges on. Moreover, and more to the point of what type of accountability he may or may not face for these alleged violations of law, Trump argued that the campaign finance violations in question, amounting to more than a quarter of a million dollars in unreported payments, are, quote, not criminal charges. Now, there is no known evidence to support his claim that the charges were put on as an attempt to embarrass the president. And yes, the charges that Cohn pleaded guilty to in a federal courtroom on Wednesday in Manhattan were indeed criminal charges, criminal felony charges. So if Cohn is receiving jail time, at least in part for participating in a criminal conspiracy that all related parties other than Donald Trump swear under penalty of perjury were in fact directed by Donald Trump, what penalty, if any, will or should Donald Trump face for actually directing that scheme? And if, as we are told, we are a country of laws, and not of men. And as Republicans used to like to say, the president is not above the law. Why are we told that a sitting president cannot be indicted for violations of criminal law? Here to hopefully bring some sober clarity to the frantic rush of breaking news and quickly changing responses to it all by the president and his defenders over the last several days since Cohn's sentencing, not to mention all of the speculation and predictions offered by pundits in its wake, is the ever-sober Craig Holman. He is an expert on campaign finance reform, governmental ethics, lobbying practices, and the impact of money in politics at Public Citizen, where he serves as their Capitol Hill lobbyist. Public Citizen is a national nonprofit advocacy organization that has been standing up to corporate power and demanding government accountability for more than 45 years. Craig Holman, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. 
Delighted to be here. It's been a long time. Uh, I want to to get into Trump's several different claims and excuses and rebuttals to all of this from the last day or so. But first, I want to set aside, if I can, both Trump himself and the presidency itself for a moment. If Donald Trump was not the sitting president now, but a House member or a senator or some other federal politician uh, alleged to have done what federal prosecutors and Michael Cohen and the publishers of National Enquirer, that they all now testify that he did in directing this scheme to affect the election results, would there most likely be a criminal indictment brought against him? You know, that is the issue of the day. The Office of Legal Counsel has issued an opinion that is reaffirmed um, about twice now that a sitting president cannot be indicted for a crime. And the rationale, the entire rationale behind it, is that indicting a president would incapacitate the executive branch. And therefore, you just can't indict a sitting president. You may indict him or her afterwards, Mm -hmm. but not while sitting in office. However, that really doesn't hold water, and it's been a matter of debate for decades. I just came back from a conference, the Council on Governmental Ethics Laws, Mm -hmm. over the weekend in Philadelphia, where John Dean spoke. Mm -hmm. John Dean was Richard Nixon's attorney for a while until he turned against Richard Nixon. Mm -hmm. But John Dean said... You know, the, uh, they debated uh, when they were prosecuting Richard Nixon whether or not Nixon could be indicted. And he said it just doesn't make sense because the OLC opinion depends entirely on the notion that if you indict the president, you incapacitate the White House. John Dean explained, we've got the 25th Amendment in the Constitution that was passed in 1967. And that sets up an entire transition period if the president becomes incapacitated. Mm. Then the vice president takes over, and it lays out who takes over all the way down the line. Well, So but, there but, is no incapacitation. We know the transition. Uh, so the president should be subject to indictment. Well, and I, I want to, and I, and I have some more thoughts on that because Adam Schiff also had some uh, thoughts on those OLC guidelines, and I want to get to that in a bit, but what I'm trying to do for the moment is take the president out of it, uh, take the presidency out of it, even take Donald Trump out of it. If anyone else did the things that Donald Trump is being accused of here by the prosecutors, by uh, his former lawyer, by uh, the National Enquirer and so forth, if they did those things but you know were not president would there be as far as you understand the way uh, these laws are are enforced would there be a an indictment criminal yes. or otherwise yes absolutely every other government official is subject to the laws of the nation just like you and i and we have seen many members of Congress, for instance, and other executive branch officials uh, face indictment, prosecution, and even imprisonment uh, for this type of felony behavior. The only, only potential and mistaken exemption is for the President of the United States because of that OLC memo. In his Fox interview, uh, citing a number of opinions published by right-wing operatives, uh, essentially, guys like the infamous Hans von Spakovsky, Trump claimed that there is no criminal violation here, no crime at all, in fact, and that, quote, 
nobody except for me would be looked at like this. You reject that, I take it? I reject that out of hand. Trump's public assertions are no longer credible. Take a look at what he has told us over the last year, year and a half. First, he denied there was ever an affair. He never had an affair with Stormy Daniels or Karen McDougal. Then, when it was proven that he did have an affair with both those women, he denied any knowledge of a payoff to uh, Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal. Mm -hmm. Now that we know there was a payoff, and we know that Trump knew there was a payoff, he's now saying, well, the decision was his lawyer's, Cohen's decision, and not his, and therefore Cohen should be held uh, liable and not Trump. And then he even takes that ridiculous step and says, well, maybe it could be illegal, uh, but it should only be a civil penalty if it is illegal. Uh, He has just gone all the way (laughs) through the revolving door of denying anything happened to now recognizing something happened, but uh, it it was never him. It's it's the same Trump excuse we hear on everything. And In fact, uh, he claims that it's uh, a civil violation at best, it was Michael Cohn's fault, not his, and that, uh, in fact, the Obama campaign, which was fined some $375,000, for misreporting uh, donations back in, uh, I think, after the 2008 election, that that was far worse than what he did. Here's a a bit of Trump's frenetic response on Fox News with Harris Faulkner on Thursday on that score, and then I'll ask some uh, specific questions about it. Number one, they say it's not a campaign finance violation. Number two, or it's not even under campaign finance. Number two, if it was, it's not even a violation. Number three, it's a civil matter. You know, President Obama had a really big one from 10 times more money, much more money. And you know what? He paid a fine. I'm the only one that this happens to. So let me hit these one at a time, Craig. Uh, is this a civil or criminal violation uh, of campaign finance law? And, and frankly, what determines the difference between the two? All evidence indicates that Trump committed a felony. And what constitutes the difference is whether the violation was knowing and willful. With the uh, the Clinton uh, failure to properly report... Obama, uh, the Obama you mean, I think? O- Obama, Obama's right. uh, failure to properly report uh, his finances, mm-hmm. that was assumed not to be knowing and willful, but just sloppy reporting. And that's why he faced a civil fine. And, by the way, he promptly recognized that he made a mistake and paid it. Uh, That's very different than Trump. Trump, who's been denying this all along and who appears to have known and willfully participated in this deception to the American American Mm -hmm. people. The most recent news story we have that was broken by the Wall Street Journal was that Trump was in the room with Cohen and uh, Pecker of AMI mm-hmm. when they were discussing the payoffs. If Trump is standing in the room while his lawyer is discussing the payoffs, the amounts, how, who to pay off, how it'll go down, Trump knew exactly what was going on, and then he covered it up. That constitutes a felony. So had uh, President Obama or or, or then uh, Senator Obama been in the room as they were uh, talking about this this money that was this 
sloppy reporting, as people have regarded it, uh, that they were fined for by the FEC. Had Obama been in that room and said, don't let the FBI, uh, FEC know about this or let's slow walk its reporting or something like that, that act would have made him then criminally liable for a felony for those very same campaign finance violations? That would have elevated it to a felony status. Had Obama actually understood that he was violating the law mm-hmm. and then decided to go ahead and violate the law and directed the violation, yes, that would have constituted a felony. But that wasn't the case with Obama. With the Obama campaign, it literally was sloppy reporting. And as soon as it was identified, they said, oh, my gosh, and uh, paid it and and also paid the fine now- for it. Now, Trump says he never, and I'm sorry to have to uh, to toss all of this stuff, all of these uh, Trump excuses at you, but you have an excellent way of speaking right to them. So Trump now also says that he never directed Michael Cohn to break the law and that if Cohn did so, that's on him, not on Trump, because Cohn was a lawyer and should have known better. Now, everyone related says that Donald Trump directed this scheme, but does he have an out here in blaming his lawyer for not following? the law. It's his very last desperate effort to try to get out of the uh, out of the felony violation. If he can reasonably argue that he didn't know it was illegal and that his lawyer should have known even if Trump did say, well, you know, do this payoff, but if Trump didn't know it was illegal and the lawyer did it on his own without telling Trump this is illegal, that would provide him an out. But that just isn't credible. I mean, Trump was in the room with both Cohen and Pecker when they were discussing this. Cohen has uh, testified in his guilty plea that he instructed uh, Trump that this would be illegal and was directed to go ahead and do it anyway, Mm. that it was designed to influence the election. We're getting the same story from David Pecker at AMI, and it isn't over. Uh, Alan Wasselberg, of uh, the CFO of the Trump Organization, has reached an immunity deal, and he's coming out with some sort of plea bargain uh, with federal authorities. So this isn't over, and every indicate every bit of evidence indicates Trump fully understood what he was doing. And he's responsible for it. Now, there was uh, at least one other uh, piece of spaghetti that uh, Trump was throwing at the at the wall during his interview with Fox News. This regarding the payment made by the National Enquirer of one hundred and fifty thousand dollars to keep Playboy uh, model Karen McDougal quiet about the affair that she says she had with Trump. He says that that cannot be a campaign finance violation because he didn't give the company AMI any money for that payment. Here he is again on Fox. I don't think, and I have to go check, I don't think they even paid any money to that tabloid, okay? I don't think we made a payment to that tabloid. I was asking the question, Let's. I don't think we, a, we made a payment. So... Uh, kind of a softball, I think, Craig. But uh, if he didn't give them any money, how can it be a campaign finance violation? Well, first of all, I want to highlight he's saying, I think I didn't give them the money. Right. So uh, it's very possible the money was given. But even if it wasn't, uh, the obligation for the payment itself constitutes making a payment for this illegal activity. So uh, merely the, the obligation, the commitment... That is the same as actually making the payment. 
and if he knew about it, as I understand, so this would all actually be somewhat different if it was his own money. But in both of these cases, to Stormy Daniels and to Karen McDougal, I think the Stormy Daniels money came from the Trump organization itself, not out of Trump's own pocket. And the uh, McDougal came from the uh, National Enquirer. Had it been his own personal money, he might have had, am I correct, that he might have had an argument that, well, I can spend as much of my own personal money on my campaign as I want, as long as I report it? Uh, He is entitled to make unlimited independent expenditures, and had he reported it as being an expenditure also designed to influence the election and followed all the other aspects of the campaign finance laws, uh, that would have been permissible. That would not have violated uh, FICA itself. But that isn't what happened. Uh, this wasn't his personal money. It wasn't reported. It was a deliberate and willful evasion of the Federal Election Campaign Act. And so the bottom line is uh, our president committed a felony. There's sort of one last uh, hole here I want to uh, try to seal up. Uh, paying someone hush money in and of itself to keep an affair quiet, that is not illegal in and of itself. It's only because all of this was unreported to the FEC, Federal Elections Commission, and apparently uh, not Donald Trump's own money, but that of his uh, his company and, and the AMI in, in the other uh, case. C- correct? Had, it, had this just been regular old hush money? Have, if I paid off my mistress to stay quiet, that's not illegal in and of itself. That is correct, and that brings up the John Edwards issue, uh, where Trump also tried claiming John Edwards got away with it, and he never had to face felony charges. Well, that was a huge difference, because with John Edwards, he did pay $1 million to his mistress uh, to keep her quiet, but she was never threatening to go to the press. Uh, It was John Edwards just seriously concerned about his wife, who had cancer at the time, discovering that he had an affair. So he made the payoff for personal reasons. Way before the election, it wasn't designed to affect the election. It really was designed to try to protect his wife. And as a payoff for a personal reason... However ethical you may or may not consider that, it is not a violation of the Federal Election Campaign Act. And once again, that is not what Trump did. And we're, we've got sworn testimony now from Cohen and from David Pecker of AMI that these payments were specifically designed to influence the election of Donald Trump and made just months prior to the, uh, to the general election mm-hmm. or weeks prior to the general election. The knowing and willful participation of our president in that decision. Very different. It, and and going through all of those uh, points and responding to uh, Trump's defenses, I would agree. This seems like a very clear-cut case, which brings us back to what is somewhat maddening to me, this idea that a sitting president cannot be indicted. Uh, you cited the uh, the uh, Department of Justice's uh, OLC memo uh, opinion, the Office of Legal Counsel, uh, in past years saying that a president can't be indicted because they can't defend themselves against a criminal trial while they are serving as president. But Congressman Adam Schiff, soon to be the chair of the House Intelligence Committee, uh, yesterday on CNN said, 
that it uh, may be time to revisit that notion, but in this case, for a very specific point. Let me let me play his thoughts here. I think the Justice Department needs to re-examine that OLC opinion, Office of Legal Counsel opinion, that you cannot indict a sitting president under circumstances in which the failure to do so may mean that person escapes justice. Uh, because if it were the case that it was now or never that if you wait until after the president leaves office they can no longer be brought to justice that ought to create certainly an exception to that OLC rule if not mean revisiting and revising the rule altogether. Now I think that shift there was referring to the fact that the statute of limitations to bring a campaign finance charge would actually expire after Trump uh, would be expired after he leaves office if he were to win a second term at least and thus he'd escape even the possibility of justice for a crime like this even after he was out of office there may be other crimes as well that he could avoid being held accountable for if he manages to stay in office for another six years but I'm not sure I'm comfortable with the entire notion that a sitting president cannot be indicted period you cite the 25th amendment would that be uh, are you suggesting that the 25th Amendment here could be used because, well, the president is indicted, that makes him incapacitated, essentially, to serve as president, therefore invoke the 25th Amendment until the trial is done, essentially? That is exactly what Adam Schiff's argument will rely on, will be the 25th Amendment. If we didn't have the 25th, the 25th Amendment was never designed to, you know, make sure the president could be indicted. That wasn't the intent. The intent was just to make sure there is a, trans, a smooth transition process. If for some reason the president dies or can't do his or her duties, or or it, for that matter is indicted, mm -hmm. uh, then there has to be a smooth transition to make sure that the executive branch and the White House continues to operate and is functional. The 25th Amendment guarantees that. And that renders the OLC opinion irrelevant to today. Uh, indicting Donald Trump will not incapacitate the executive branch. As a matter of fact, it might make things go uh, quite a bit smoother. <laughs> but uh, nonetheless, this is the guideline. This is the Justice Department guideline. Everyone seems to expect that Robert Mueller will file, file, uh, uh, follow the Justice Department guideline. Uh, yes, it's not a law. It could be changed, uh, this opinion. But uh, who would go about changing that opinion in the, you know, the, the Trump Department of Justice at this point? That is the only real obstacle in this entire debate. I mean, the evidence is overwhelming that our president committed a felony. Uh, the only obstacle is what can we do about it. And given that the attorney general is a Trump appointee and Robert Mueller has already indicated he's going to stick with the OLC opinion, uh, it's, it doesn't appear likely that, that these crimes are going to result in an indictment of Donald Trump. It would be a huge hurdle to overcome. Uh, if more news breaks, more, you know, scandalous activity breaks, we've seen some Democrats in Congress, like Adam Schiff, change and start saying, hey, we've got to revisit this. But at this point, this is the only obstacle that is impeding 
the progress of this case. Craig, if if Trump went out and, you know, as as they say, actually shot a guy on Fifth Avenue, you know, on camera, everyone saw him do it. Surely the Department of Justice could not say, oh, well, he is a sitting president, can't charge him with murder. We've got a an OLC opinion that says otherwise. I mean, doesn't that sort of in and of itself render this opinion kind of absurd, at least when we're talking about criminal charges versus uh, civil charges, as we are here? Well, certainly the hypothetical renders it absurd. Uh, It would be the type of scandal that would invite the Office of Legal Counsel and the Attorney General's Office to reverse their opinion. I mean, obviously, if it went to that level, uh, it would be absolutely absurd to defend an indefensible OLC opinion. And yet that seems to be the OL. It doesn't seem like they included any exceptions, you know, unless the guy shoots someone uh, on Fifth Avenue. Last question for you, Craig Holman. I have seen a lot of uh, Trump's defenders, folks like Rand Paul and Orrin Hatch, et cetera, saying that this should not be a criminal issue, that at best someone who did this should pay a fine and be done with it. You have spent many years working uh, at Public Citizen on issues related to campaign finance violations. What sort of penalty, in, in your opinion, should be brought against someone in a case like this, uh, whether they are president or not? I consider this a felony. There are two different classes of violations of the Federal Election Campaign Act. Uh, the first is civil penalties, and that is designed to cover, you know, sloppiness or perhaps inattentiveness or lack of awareness of the real campaign finance law, and empower the Federal Election Commission to make sure the uh, that the federal election laws are followed. The second category is the felony category designed to capture people who actually plot and willfully design how to evade the law and then carry out uh, egregious violations of the law and then cover it up. That gets into the category of a felony, and that's what we're seeing in this case in particular. Craig Holman, Public Citizens Government Affairs Lobbyist. You can uh, find their important work at citizen.org. You can also find them on the Twitters at public underscore citizen. And you can find Craig on the Twitters if you'd like to uh, disagree with his outrageous thoughts here today uh, on the Twitters at C.B. Holman. Craig, you're always... uh, Uh, Very helpful and very clear-minded when it comes to these issues. Uh, Thank you, Craig Holman. It's always great to have a discussion with you. You Take care. Thank you. Okay, what a mess. Uh, Let's take a break, and we will come back with, uh, of course, Donald Trump is not the only one, not the only Republican in this country trying to undermine it and everything it stands for. Quick break, and we are back with the uh, what's going on in Wisconsin and Michigan, and yes, some more election news straight ahead on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the broadcast. 
but we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com donate, and thanks. you know welcome back to the bradcast brad friedman from bradblog.com i swear to god some of these uh, republicans are just begging and pleading for there to be a revolution against them as we predicted he would while pretending that maybe he wouldn't wisconsin governor scott walker signed a i should say outgoing wisconsin governor scott walker signed a sweeping package of republican legislation on friday that restricts early voting and weakens the incoming democratic governor and attorney general brushing aside complaints that he is enabling a brazen power grab and ignoring the will of voters Yes, uh, Scott Walker is giving one last huge middle finger to the voters of Wisconsin before he leaves office, seems to me. After being rejected by voters in the state last November, along with every other Republican running for statewide office in the Badger State, after voters there chose Democrats for every single one of those offices last November. What they decidedly uh, didn't vote for were the bills that were signed by Scott Walker today, none of which were actually campaigned on by Republicans during the midterms. But Republicans apparently do not give a damn. They don't give a damn about the voters. They don't give a damn about democracy. Signing the bills just 24 days before he leaves office, the Republican governor and one-time presidential candidate downplayed bipartisan, bipartisan criticism that these bills amounted to a power grab that will stain his legacy. As if his legacy was not already stained enough. Uh, Just two hours uh, later... After he signed the bills, a group run by former Democratic U.S. Attorney General Eric Holder announced its plans, its plans uh, for legal action to block the limitation on early voting. So at least one part of this has already brought uh, a lawsuit, a promise for a lawsuit. But, of course, the taxpayers in Wisconsin who didn't vote for any of this will be on the hook to defend against likely multiple lawsuits that will be filed against this unprecedented sore loser power grab by the unconstitutionally gerrymandered state legislature, which passed this suite of bills in an unprecedented lame duck session. Now, just by way of reminder, Democrats running for state assembly in Wisconsin this year received 54 percent of the votes statewide. 
but they will hold just one-third of its seats in 2019, thanks to the GOP extreme partisan gerrymandering in the state, which was found to be unconstitutional by federal courts, who ordered new maps in Wisconsin. But uh, those rulings were blocked by the Republican stolen U.S. Supreme Court, which delayed that ruling um, before recessing last June. And now uh, it is unlikely uh, that uh, that ruling will be upheld because now they got uh, what's the new guy's name? <laughs> Brett Kavanaugh. Kavanaugh now on there. Uh, and uh, he'll probably strike down those rulings and say, no, it's great. Partisan gerrymandering is fantastic. Why not? Got a problem with it? Talk well, to the legislature about it. The legislature that makes it impossible to talk to them because they have gerrymandered their own districts. Well, I'm sure that the Republicans and Walker don't particularly care about their legacy, such as it is, since they didn't care before about the voters or democracy while they were in power. And now that they're out of power, they get to be lobbyists. Good point. Uh, that's Desi Doyen, by the way. I didn't get yes. to say hi to you at the top no, of the you show. Didn't. Uh, Walker's action on Friday comes as Michigan's Rick Snyder, another Midwestern GOP governor who is soon to be replaced by a Democrat, signed legislation himself in a lame duck session to significantly scale back minimum wage and paid sick leave laws that had begun as citizen initiatives to prevent, however, to prevent minimum wage and earned sick, sick time initiatives from going to the voters last month, GOP lawmakers in Michigan approved them uh, approved the laws in September before the election in order to keep them off the ballot so that they could then more easily alter them with simple majority votes rather than the three-fourths support that would be needed if voters had passed the proposals. See what they did? This is a tactic that has never been done until now in Michigan. It was criticized as un unconstitutional, an attack on voters' will, uh, at a time that Republicans in Michigan are trying to dilute the powers of incoming elected Democrats, just like what's going on in Wisconsin. Michigan's Republican legislators are also weighing legislation resembling Wisconsin's that would strip or dilute the authority of the uh, incoming elected Democrats. Because, yes, in Michigan as well, they elected a Democratic governor, a Democratic attorney general, a Democratic secretary of state. Uh, the push in both Wisconsin and Michigan mirrors tactics employed by North Carolina Republicans in 2016, and we'll get to North Carolina in a moment. Walker in Wisconsin was urged by Democrats and Republicans, the AP notes, including Democratic governor-elect Tony Evers and former Republican Governor Scott McCallum to reject this legislation. But Walker, who was defeated by Evers for a third term, had earlier said he was considering a partial veto of some of these measures. He ultimately did not strike anything. He signed it all. He had the chance, and he chose not to. Of course. Uh, Evers said that people will remember that Walker took a stand that was not reflective of this last election. He said, I will be reviewing our options and uh, do everything we can to make sure that the people of this state are not ignored or overlooked. 
Eric Holder's group, the National Redistricting Foundation, along with the One Wisconsin Now organization, promised a swift legal challenge to the uh, provision that Walker signed limiting early voting. That will limit early voting to just two weeks everywhere across the state. That in response to record turnout during early voting before the uh, last November's election where some jurisdictions allowed up to six or seven weeks of early voting. And so why are Republicans limiting it to two weeks now? Well, because too many goddamn people voted, apparently. And while two weeks might be plenty uh, for rural areas, uh, it will be much harder to early vote now in the densely populated Democratic-leaning areas like Milwaukee and Madison, where Republicans took their worst drubbing in November. Holder said in a statement, this is a shameful attack on our democracy. Uh, His group and one Wisconsin now already successfully sued in federal court back in 2016 to overturn similar early voting uh, and other restrictions that were enacted by Walker. But, uh, you know, why not do it again? Why not waste more taxpayer money? The same measure, essentially, was previously found to be unconstitutional. We had the uh, plaintiff from One Wisconsin Now on the show about a week or so ago to discuss it. The legislation also shields the state's job creation agency from Evers's control, limits his ability to enact administrative rules in the state, The measure would also block Evers from withdrawing Wisconsin from a multi-state GOP lawsuit challenging the Affordable Care Act, one of his central campaign promises. It imposes a work requirement for uh, for Medicaid uh, health insurance recipients. Uh, It eliminates the State Department of Justice's Solicitor General's office, which the outgoing Republican AG Brad Schimmel used to launch contentious partisan litigation. Well, get rid of that office so that we can't have any more contentious partisan litigation launched by Democrats. Uh, So just uh, this is what they do. This is the smash and grab that you've been talking about. They're on their way out the door, so they're smashing and grabbing what they can to hold on to power and to make it so people can't dislodge them easily next time. Uh, In fact, Walker, uh, the signing of these bills today comes uh, one day after he announced a $28 million incentive package to keep open uh, a Kimberly-Clark Corporation plant in northeast Wisconsin. If I'm not mistaken, Kimberly-Clark is a Koch Brothers outfit. I I think it is, but, you know, I can't be sure. I think it is. But uh, one of the lame duck bills that was signed by Walker on Friday would prevent the incoming Governor Evers from making a similar deal, instead requiring the legislature's budget committee to sign off on it. So Walker just yesterday did what he has outlawed today. That's how much of a hypocritical loser he is. What a sleaze. Okay. Uh, Meanwhile, speaking of North Carolina, uh, while Republicans in Wisconsin and Michigan are making elections more difficult for Democratic voters in North Carolina, they're just blatantly stealing them at this point. Quick break and we're back with the latest on the North Carolina GOP absentee ballot fraud scandal, which now appears to be spreading into all new congressional districts. That and more straight ahead. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast.
Five major corporations now control more than 80 percent of the media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100 percent independent, 100 percent listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. You can make a difference. Support independent media. Drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Welcome back. It's the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Thank you for sticking with us here today. The uh, GOP absentee ballot election fraud scandal in North Carolina's 9th Congressional District, well, it may be larger than currently presumed, or I should say previously presumed. The bulk of the attention has been on Bladen County in uh, in the 9th Congressional District in North Carolina and uh, the neighboring Robeson County among the eight that make up uh, North NC9, North Carolina's 9th District. But now new evidence reported by WECT in Wilmington suggests possible fraud involving absentee mail-in ballots may have happened in Columbus County as well. That's in a completely different congressional district. That's in the 7th Congressional District. Okay. Hmm. The uh, the television station reports that about, quote, about a third of the absentee ballots, or 32%, that were requested in Columbus County during the 2018 general election never got returned to the Board of Elections. That's an even higher percentage of missing ballots than the unreturned ballots, uh, ballot numbers that raised the red flags initially in Bladen County. According to WECT, there were 557 ballots requested in the county during the November election. Of those, uh, 181, or 32 percent, were not returned. Most of the missing ballots were mailed to... Registered Democrats, according to the station. That's a very large number of absentee ballots to not be returned. Uh, And it's significant since former Sheriff Lewis Hatcher, who is a Democrat, former um, Columbus County Sheriff Lewis Hatcher, lost his seat in November by just 37 votes. Hmm. You will call that in uh, Bladen County, Sheriff Jim McVicker, a Republican, had paid thousands of dollars to the uh, to the same man, uh, McCray Dallas, who is uh, apparently was also contracted in Columbus County. He's uh, McCray Dallas is the guy who was hired by Republican Mark Harris to run his absentee ballot campaign in Bladen County in the uh, GOP primary and the general election for the now disputed U.S. House race in the 9th District, which Harris is said to have won by just 905 votes. And yet we have all of these absentee ballot irregularities in Bladen County and possibly Robeson County. Uh, They also had an unusually large number of requested absentee ballots 
from Democrats that were never returned in Bladen County amid Dowless's work to hire people to go to people's homes and illegally collect those ballots. And then what came of them? No one ever knows. We discussed yesterday or the day before. I can't remember now. That at one point, Dallas, uh, according to a Republican who filed an affidavit, admits this investigation in the 9th District, a uh, Republican uh, who had uh, talked to Dallas at a Republican event prior to the election uh, said that Dallas told him he had at least 800 absentee ballots in his possession, which is illegal. And he hadn't turned them in, uh, which is also illegal, but for him to even collect them at all is illegal. And there was this huge number of Republican absentee ballots, or I should say Republican absentee votes in the county, in Bladen County, even though the uh, Republicans uh, make make up a very small uh, portion of those who had actually requested and returned absentee ballots in Bladen County. Um, the back to Columbus County now, where this seems to be spreading, the 32 percent unreturned ballots uh, is also very unusual compared to the state norms for unreturned absentee ballots. Elections say that 80 to 90 percent of requested absentee ballots in North Carolina are usually returned. Even compared to Columbus County norms, the 2018 unreturned absentee ballot numbers stand out. Uh, During the 2014 midterms, just 14 percent of absentee ballots went unreturned. Fourteen percent in the last midterms were unreturned. This time, 32 percent were unreturned for unexplained reasons. WECT uncovered this week that, yes, Dowless was also working as a contractor in Columbus County specifically for Sheriff Hatcher's opponent, Jody Green. Remember, the one who uh, won by, what was it, 30-something votes. A Columbus elections official told WECT they did not recall Dallas being active in Columbus County um, during uh, previous elections, but he was in almost daily contact with the Columbus County Board of Elections during 2018 elections. We're told that uh, Dallas regularly requested poll books and certificates of report, which detail the names of people who have already voted, where they voted, and absentee voters by precinct. The State Elections Board has refused to certify the 9th District Congressional race between Harris, uh, the Republican, and Democrat Dan McCready until after the investigation into all of these possible election uh, fraud irregularities until after that investigation is complete. Uh, As I noted, uh, Harris is said to have won the race by 905 votes. The State Elections Board will review the evidence later this month and decide what the hell to do, including whether they should call for a new election, including perhaps a new primary election, since Dallas also worked on that for Mark Harris in the 9th Congressional District. Uh, Also, the State Board of Elections could name Harris or McCready as the winner. Uh, But it uh, may now be more than just that House race in the 9th District and the sheriff's race in Bladen County that comes under scrutiny here as this scandal broadens, even as Republicans in the state now concede that there will likely need to be a new election for the U.S. House in the 9th District. Um, 
it, and they're not admitting it yet, but there may need to be new elections for sheriff in at least two different counties. All of this, while Republicans nationally, including those who have been screaming about pretend polling place voter fraud by Democrats for years as a way to pass laws to make it harder for Democratic-leaning voters to vote, those very same folks continue to all but ignore this, yes, massive and still growing election fraud scandal by Republicans in North Carolina. All right. Uh, one more. Uh, well, we here we have maybe an actual resolution uh, to an election from uh, from November. A federal judge rejected a lawsuit on Thursday filed by a Republican incumbent from Maine who lost the nation's first congressional election held under a candidate ranking system known as ranked choice voting. Democrat Jared Golden is said to have defeated Bruce Poliquin, the incumbent, in the November contest, which allowed voters to rank up to four candidates. Poliquin won the most votes in uh, the initial count, but he failed to get a majority in that count. So votes cast for the two trailing candidates in the race were then reassigned to voters' uh, second choices. Uh, by the computer tabulators in this case, which swung the election to the Democrat Golden. Poliquin then filed a lawsuit alleging that the new voting system violated the U.S. Constitution. He asked Judge Lance Walker either to declare him the winner since he got the most votes, first place votes in the initial count, or to order a second election for the second congressional district. But Walker, who is a, a, a recent appointee by Donald Trump, he did neither. Instead, he threw out the suit. The judge said that he failed to see how Maine's candidate ranking system undercut voters' First Amendment rights in any fashion, quote, in any fashion, as the judge wrote, um, nor did it undermine the Voting Rights Act, as the judge saw it. Meanwhile, the state, as of yesterday, was about halfway through a month-long recount in the race up in Augusta, the state capital, uh, for the second congressional district election. Poliquin had requested that recount. It's a hand recount, but it takes a long time to hand recount ranked choice voting uh, uh, races, given that all the votes have to be tallied and retallied and figured out and readjusted several times in order to replicate the computer algorithm that is uh, that is used that was previously used to determine that the Democrat here, Jared Golden, was actually the winner under the ranked choice counting scheme. Uh, after the judge's ruling was announced on Thursday, Poliquin said that he remained concerned about some main voters who expressed confusion with the voting system. Uh, which was used for the first time this year in a uh, congressional race. He defended Maine's old system as, quote, common sense, one person, one vote process. His lawyer had argued that the candidate ranking system required voters to guess at which candidates would survive until the second runoff style round of tabulations, which uh, the attorney for Golden, the Democrat, uh, called completely preposterous. Maine voters approved this new voting method in 2016, and uh, their outgoing Republican governor, Paul LePage, the dumbest governor in the nation, uh, he opposed ranked choice voting 
Uh, he sent a letter to Judge Walker before the ruling, stating that he feels that ranked pro- that the ranked process is quote repugnant to the governing legal principles that each person's vote be counted in every election, as well as the constitutional guarantees of due process and equal protection. Well, Judge Walker felt that Paul LePage was wrong, and I should note that while uh, I think LePage is the dumbest governor in the country and maybe in the, in the country's history, I'm no fan of uh, ranked choice voting. And for exactly the reasons we are seeing in this uh, very first use of it in a congressional race, it uh, becomes a mess, and it becomes very difficult for voters to have confidence in the results and for the public to be able to oversee in any hand count. Remember, Maine's 2nd District is not huge, and yet this recount was expected to go on for about a month. But not anymore. U.S. Congressman Bruce Poliquin today uh, asked state officials on Friday to end the recount of the 2nd Congressional District. In a statement on Facebook and Twitter, Poliquin said that although the recount process has confirmed that, in fact, he won even more votes than initially reported on Election Day, quote, due to impending holidays, I believe it's important to end the recount process, despite, quote, unanswered questions about the ranked choice voting system enshrined by Maine voters back in 2016 and again this year. He said, uh, Maine people continue to uh, write and approach me with grave concerns over ranked voting. I understand their concerns and the need for our elections to be transparent and fair. He won, by the way, Paula Quinn did, by more than 2,200 votes in the first uh, round of voting, more first-choice votes in any event than his uh, Democratic opponent, But then he lost to Golden by uh, more than 3,500 votes once they started rejiggering the votes. You mean once the computer algorithm started recounting all the votes and figuring out what the computer says was the person who won. That's the other problem with ranked choice voting is that it requires a computer to count it. Uh, Well, it sure seems to, uh, because this thing would have gone on for a month. What uh, the impending holidays have to do with it, I don't understand. If Paula Quinn thinks that he was uh, unjustifiably run out of office here, I think uh, the hand count should have continued, and we could have all seen how absolutely difficult it is to oversee any ranked choice uh, election. Paula Quinn's only remaining course of action at this point is to contest the federal court ruling. In the First Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, he said his team is continuing to evaluate that, though no appeal has yet been filed. Uh, And experts say that uh, suit did not stand much chance at all of uh, of being successful. Uh, Maybe the recount more so. I don't know. But that's where we are. So it looks like, uh, yeah, we will have at least 40 Democrats heading to Congress on January 3rd. Maybe more, depending on what goes on in North Carolina. All right, that's it. Got to get out. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest today, public citizens Craig Holman, and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It is greatly appreciated and always an honor. If you missed any portion of today's show, download it anytime at bradblog.com. It's free. You can drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Brad Blog. I'd love to see you there. 
And my thanks to those of you who keep us on the public airwaves day in and day out by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. We rely only on you to stay on your public airwaves. And we could use your support here before the end of the year very much. bradblog.com slash donate. Thank you. That's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.